Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, New Books and African American Studies listeners. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today we have on Associate Professor of History, Matthew Clavin, from the University of Houston, for his Harvard University Press published book from 2015 called Aiming for Pensacola, Fugitive Slaves on the Atlantic and Southern Frontiers. Hello, Professor. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me, Adam. Very good. Very good. And so, um, before we get into the book, um, typically we like to speak to our uh, historians and scholars about how they not only um, got started um, as far as their academic trajectory, but also how they got to the particular work that brings us into contact with them today. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little breakdown of how that configures for you. Boy, that's believe it or not, that's a very difficult question. I don't have the typical trajectory Um I when I when I as late as age twenty one, I mean, you would have have had no idea that I would end up being a, a, a college professor studying history. In fact, at my ten year high school reunion, I had a former classmate laugh at me when I told him I was working on my PhD. He couldn't believe it. Um, it, it. Back when I was young in high school, I was I was a basketball player and a comedian. That's how people knew me. Um, but I. What I didn't tell people from a very young age, I just I just loved history. I still do. I can't get enough of it. And just through a lot of different life experiences, you know, it's it you know personal stuff. But ultimately, it was when I was an undergrad, and you know, I'd always been fascinated with the civil rights movement. And I kind of thought um, foolishly, now looking back on it, during uh, you know 1980s when I was in high school. Um, college in the, in the 90s primarily. And I, I look, you know, it was when I was young, I really thought, you know, the civil rights movement was over. Integration is a reality. You know, my parents went to sort of segregated schools. Uh, my mom and both of them in the north near Chicago, uh, Gary, Indiana as well. And I had gone to integrated schools uh, in suburban Baltimore, you know, diverse population. And, you know, I would watch things like Eyes on the Prize and I said, wow, we have come so far. And ironically, it was when I went to school further north in Philadelphia that I can honestly tell you, I, I really saw racist. racist uh, for the first time in my life, I had never heard a white person my age hear the N word um, uh, in, in a, in a, as a pejorative. You know, people sing rap music and things like that. But I moved to Philadelphia and I met what I would call just stone cold racist for the first time in my life. And so that just rocked my world. And you know, again, you, you grow up in a bubble almost, so naive. And, and ever since then, and I, I had been fascinated with race before then, but that really flipped a switch with me, trying to explain why. 
And so as I became an undergraduate history major, I just assumed that I would you know, go on and get my master's. And I just loved the civil rights movement. But as I got to my PhD program at, at American University in D.C., it was it really, and other historians have experienced this, you can't explain the struggles of the 20th century regarding race unless you go back a little bit further. And you can't understand the struggles of the 19th century. So eventually, I went back to the beginning. And, and, and if you really want to break down um, you know, just the issue and topic of race in American or even just Atlantic or, or the world history at large, slavery is at the center of it. And so it's just a combination of, of just fascination with the idea, um, you know, disgust at the idea of, of, of inequality and racism. And so it just set me on, you know, that, that was my sort of academic journey. And, you know, by the time I finished even my undergraduate degree, I had also fallen in love with just, I always loved teaching, um, but I, I really fell in love with the primary scholarship. And to this day, you know, we, we have spring break next week. And, you know, what do I plan to do? Spend days in an in a archive, library basement, going through microfilm. You know, what kind of weird person? <laughs> You're right. That it was spring break. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a dream come true. And so uh, anytime you get a chance to talk about your scholarship, what fascinates you, um, I, I jump at the opportunity. And right. And I'm definitely glad that you jumped into the arms of the, and really in this case, the ears of the New Books audience, because, um, you know, as someone who prides themselves on knowing about um, the history of slavery and the history of really that antebellum era America, especially um, and going into the colonial, and especially being a Floridian too, right? And then reading, and, and as we talked about offline, you know, on Amazon, and just seeing your book, and I'm like, what? You you know that 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 flustered look, right? Your face scrunches up at the screen. It's like, what? It's like you're looking at the sun because the 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 light of the new information and the new scholarship is just hitting you, and it's just just touching you in a certain way. And for me. Um, it brought me to uh, bring you on to the to the show because for me, I just didn't think that there was any kind of any closeness to uh, you know obviously fugitive sla- uh, fugitive slaves will be anywhere there's slavery, but to think about the Underground Railroad and the potential nature of of uh, a southern area being a place where people go to, to try to free themselves, right? That was to me astonishing and so greatly why I wanted you on today. Well, you know, we had a great segue two minutes ago and, you know, so growing up in the upper South and then traveling to the North and and seeing racism for the first time, um, I look at U.S. history a little bit different than other people um, because my first you know, personal experience was was really going to the north to see it. And then I moved to Pensacola right after my Ph.D. I worked at the University of West Florida, and I had heard of Negro Fort. I knew of the abolitionist Jonathan Walker, and I really thought, you know, wow, this is I'm going to have to get into this stuff at some point. Um, but so when I went there, I, I, I just understood, you know, people try to simplify history just in general. And if there's anything I emphasize to students, it's the gray area. And while you, yeah, and you might be able to say generally that America has a very disturbing racial history, that's kind of undeniable. And you could even stipulate that it was 
far worse in the South, given the history of slavery, you know, although Northerners practice slavery as well. But then there's the, the lynching and reconstruction and, uh, again, the civil rights movement. But I always, I don't go out of my way, but I do feel the need to point out repeatedly that racism is an American tradition. It's not just a Southern. It's not just a Northern. I mean, it's in California. It's in Alaska. It's everywhere. And so when I went there, I really, I think I just had a, a different lens on than, than most people would when they, when they delve into Pensacola history. And the cool thing was I wasn't looking, you know, to really do what I eventually discovered, which is this, this tradition of fugitive slavery in Pensacola and, and quite frankly, the whole uh, West Florida Gulf Coast. But it didn't take long of me going through old newspapers and court records. I mean, I'm telling you, it took a couple of days and it just exploded off the page that like this is this was a serious problem for slave owners from the colonial era through the Civil War. And, and you know, it, and there are peaks and valleys. And, you know, during the American Revolution, during the War of 1812, the Civil War, the stream of fugitive slaves to and from Pensacola becomes an absolute flood that, that people try desperately, but they can't ultimately stop. And so, you know, people or historians always try to start with a research question. And one of my central questions was, what explains, you know, in Pensacola in the, you know, the antebellum era, the, the 18 teens and earlier, you are talking never more than a thousand or two people population. And I'm going through newspapers and court records, and I'm coming across dozens and dozens and dozens, sometimes, you know, scores of slaves every year are running to and from places. And so it really, you know, just made my mind spin in circles. Uh, and I always, I always tell graduate students in particular, you know, to write a source-driven paper. You know, you can have all the great ideas, but if you can't find the sources. And I think what makes really good scholarship and good history is when the sources almost find you. And so when I just stumbled upon all these sources, I, you know, the, the, the book project was, I just was sort of like the, um, the vehicle for it. <laughs> and and the, the sources spoke for themselves. And so I think one thing I'm really proud about the book is it's, it's just the, the evidence is kind of unimpeachable or it's certainly undeniable that there was a, um, an issue, you know, something unusual about Pensacola, Florida from the Spanish period all the way through the Civil War. And it was what slave owners would call a plague of runaways. And so I just tried to sort of reveal for the reader, you know, who ran away, how'd they run away, where'd they go, did they get help? And and I had a blast doing it, quite frankly. Right. And and believe me, as a reader of the text, um, I was definitely uh, I was definitely enlightened in such a way because you know, growing up in Florida, you know about the different flags um, that the state has been under, you know, going through the change of hands from, you know, the Spanish and also Pensacola being um, the first settlement in Florida. It's not St. Augustine. It's like the land of Lincoln. I used to work in Kentucky on a side note. And, uh, you know, we'd always uh, I used to work at Abe Lincoln Birthplace National Historical Park in Hodgenville, Kentucky. And we'd have a running rivalry with people from um, from um, uh, from Illinois because it's like, you know, they call themselves a land of Lincoln, even on the license plates. But it's like, well, that may be true, but don't forget about his years in Kentucky and also Indiana. And so, uh, you know, it's like Pensacola is also somewhere that was the first set, uh, settlement and not just, you know, St. Augustine being there, too. And I think that's important because. 
Pensacola has been an embattled place for a long time. And, and, and to a certain degree, still reaches into the present. But for the time frame of this particular book, it's important because from the Spanish to uh, um, um, the English and to the Confederacy, and, it, and it's an important piece. Um, and it's so cool to find out that it was a place of freedom for, for, for many people, or at least a place where people sought freedom, I should say, too. Yeah, yeah, or you know, and even if, if freedom was not achieved, it was sort of a, a beacon, you know. And it was, I really suspect, and you know, and, and very early on in, in the whole process of writing this book, I was just, you know, I'm from, as I said, Baltimore, Maryland, from the Upper South, and that's where you get the bulk of runaways, obviously, because they're going 20, 30, 40 miles um, to freedom, to Pennsylvania, and even out west with Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio, you, you know, if you're close to the, if you're along the border, north and south, your chances of escaping increase. And so all the legendary fugitive slaves, you know, the Douglases, the Tubmans, William Wells Brown, they're all from the upper south. So another thing I really had to wrestle with from day one was, you know, the vast majority of enslaved people in the half century or more before the Civil War, they lived nowhere near the North. You know, slaves were being uh, transferred, bought and sold, uh, forced uh, to, to traverse the, the internal slave trade. They, they, they went from Maryland, they went from Virginia, Virginia they went from Kentucky to, to Louisiana, to Alabama, to Mississippi, uh, Western and Southern Georgia. And so, you know, I, I, I think the assumption has always been that those people, and I hate to sort of just dismiss it like that, but I think people think those slaves maybe gave up or, you know, accepted their position or were so distraught that, you know, the, the soul murder that Nell Painter has talked about. Um, and, and when, you know, when I started coming across all these runaways, you know, and I'm just, as most people, I am just so enthralled with the story of the Underground Railroad, the interracial alliances. Just resistance in general. I love to study people who resist. I love to study iconoclast. Um, and to find these people in, you know, 400 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, they're on a rural Alabama cotton plantation. And they have the audacity to try to escape slavery by heading south. And, you know, maybe their goal, in some cases, it appears their goal is to stay in Pensacola. Maybe they have friends or they've been there before. Or they've heard about it. But just as often, the goal is to just get on a, a sailing vessel. And I think in certain time periods, and I have found in certain instances, they have a destination in mind. But more often than not, they're just trying to get the heck out of town, you know, get out of Dodge. And so they get to the closest port that they hear might be welcoming. And again, how the, the communication is unbelievable. They're 400 miles inland on a rural Alabama plantation, but they come and they come and they don't stop coming until slavery is abolished in 1865. And so it's, it's what an incredible story. You know, we think it took a lot of gumption and bravery and courage to, to get from Baltimore or DC or Louisville to, to freedom in the North. And it's, without a doubt it did, you know, we can't even imagine the bravery and courage, but I would contend it requires even more um, heroism to try to get from central Alabama to freedom by going south. And so, I mean, what a, what a topsy-turvy story. I mean, you're talking about flipping the narrative upside down. I think that's what this book tries to do, or at least does fairly successfully at times. Don't worry. I, I'll be the non-humble party in this. I definitely think that <laughs> you, you, you accomplish that. You know, like I say, you don't have to be that person. Oh, I understand. Sure. You know, be humble. But uh, 
Well, that was the you goal. Know, that was the goal. For oh sure. yeah, definitely. But every now and again, you gotta you gotta pump yourself up a little bit. Um, and, and, okay. and so for me, um, in in this in this story, you know, somebody who is, uh, you know, when I think about also when I th- when I think about Florida and the uh, the northern part of Florida, especially, I think about someone like uh, uh, future president Andrew Jackson. I think about you know the Trail of Tears. I think about you know these particular time, the particular time that he was the um, uh, the territorial uh, governor of Florida, I believe, as it were, and also looking at you know how disruptive Pensacola was because as you look at the work of people like uh, Alan Taylor, who wrote about uh, the War of eighteen twelve in Virginia, or not the War of eighteen twelve in, in Virginia, but really kind of how yeah, 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 yeah it, was, it was a war of eighteen twelve. The aftermath. Right, the yeah. aftermath. And so looking at kind of how uh, uh, coastal areas, right? So we're looking at the shipping and you're looking at black sailors. And so we're reaching into people like uh, 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 Jeffrey Bolster's work um, and, and different folks like uh, like uh, uh, Marcus Redditor. Life, life changer. Life changer. Oh, both. believe me. Yeah. I, we, believe yeah. me, we could have a whole other podcast about just uh, Marcus <laughs> Redditor and, um, and also uh, uh, Bolster. Uh, but... But looking at how the sea is disruptive to notions of freedom and unfreedom, especially in the context of how people become enslaved, is that they are transported using those using those vessels, but also using the notion of water and that river flowing that Vincent Harding brings up as well. So there's so many different areas of connection uh, that's building along that. And so if you don't mind kind of kind of speaking about those particular areas, especially when it comes to, um, you know, how the, how Florida really changes hands when you have the British having the partition with East and West Florida um, after uh, the, well, seven years of the French and Indian wars, especially. Well, I'll back up real quickly. And just like you said, you know, when, when I'm in graduate school and, it wasn't even for a class, but I, I actually had a friend recommend it, and I read Bolster's Blackjacks. And as I said, that was a life, life, life-changing book. Not only do I have it at the house, I have a copy at the office too, just in case. Um, but also when I was at American University, I had the opportunity to take a course at Georgetown with Allison Games, who is a renowned Atlantic history scholar. And I took a class, Africans in the Atlantic world, or basically a black Atlantic class. I mean, actually, it was an Atlantic world class. But with my focus on on slavery, um, she basically introduced me to the study of the black Atlantic. And so that was yet another thing, a little bit of baggage I had intellectually when I moved to Pensacola. And so I think people who are born and raised there, who read the local histories and they read about the Confederacy and they read about slavery and they read about all these things. I just came at it from a different angle. You know, just like you had said, my angle was, you know, not looking sort of northward towards Alabama and Mississippi, but looking southward to the Gulf of Mexico and and just the larger world in general. And so if you have a free black person, if you have a Spaniard, if you have a Creole, if you have a a slave, a soldier, I mean, if you are living on on the the Florida coast, if you are in Pensacola, it's, it's very likely your world is maritime. Your world is somewhere else, you know, far away from Alabama. And so just the framework, you know, the framework of the way you, you, you picture something changes everything. 
but you had asked about the changing of you had ch- the changing of of you know from Spanish to British and back to Spanish and eventually territorial period and then an American period and then there's a short Confederate period during the Civil War. It's, um, it's a really lot going on. <laughs> but the neat thing, yeah, and, and anyone who studies history uh, studies slavery knows that these these political battles between powers, European powers, American powers. There's always people who exploit them, <laughs> and in particular, enslaved enslaved people. And you know, and so I just through all my reading and uh, research and reading and writing over the years, I just I can't emphasize enough that I still believe people underestimate the American slave. I still think, and we have improved so much from from the elementary school level through through graduate school. Many people today really do appreciate. Um, slave resistance more than they did a generation or three ago, right? But I still find myself repeatedly in everything I write reminding people that we're not, we are still underestimating their resiliency and their resistance. And, and so they're resisting all the time. But Lord have mercy, things change. You know, if you're in Pensacola or the vicinity and you've tried to escape and got caught or you're thinking about escaping, it is. Your world changes when British ships arrive in 1814. And oh, by the way, they're, you know, these British officers are carrying these pamphlets that say, you know, they will give you not only freedom after the war if you join their, you know, Marine Corps, um, they will allow your family after the war, your whole family, they will take you to a British colony. They will give you freedom and land should you decide to run away from your master and make it to the British ships. And as you can imagine, same thing happens during the Civil War. You know, people are resisting, people are fighting back, but it's a game changer when Union troops arrive and pretty much do the exact same thing. Same thing during the American Revolution. So again, you have the peaks and valleys. I think there's nonstop resistance, but what all this political conflict does is it creates opportunities and it increases, you know, some already existing opportunities. And so you see every time there's a change of government, every time there's an invading army, as expected, as Alan Taylor shows in Virginia, there is a massive spike in slave, you know, uh, fugitive slavery. And so that's fascinating to trace over time um, how it's always there. It's omnipresent. But boy, during those 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 periods of conflict, it's it's really exciting to come to, to, to explore. Right. And I think that the I would definitely say that one of the more important and really cool parts about the book is. It, it's very episodic, and 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 I think you know you mentioned before about you know making sure to impress upon your your students uh, about making their work primary source based, which is phenomenal. But I think the cool part about your writing in this book is that it's a page turner, right? I remember I remember reading it, and, and like I was I was going through this bad boy quick because I'm thinking like. Man, this thing is. I need to get to that next chapter. Like, what's happening with uh, like Jonathan Walker? Like, I'm thinking like, so so as someone who uh uses the Liberator files, um, uh, a digital base for for those who are not aware, um, uh, that's uh, online of all of the this digitized uh, uh uh newspaper for the Liberator, like the entire thing is online. And so uh, reading that and seeing like Walker, I'm thinking like, dude, this is this is crazy. Like because you have people like Garrison and others who, you know, did spend time in Baltimore, but for the most part, their excursions into areas and sites of slavery were minuscule to nil. 
Um, but you have someone like, you know, Walker, who's, you know, who's down there. Right. And so um, I think that was one of the more dynamic portions. But even before then, um, learning about, you know, the War of 1812, which I have said, oddly enough, since I was even, I think even before undergrad saying in high school, um, in, in the mid to late 2000s, that why does the War of 1812 seem to be the, the that gray area that you talk about, right? What are the bridge wars? What are the bridges? Like, you know, I used to work at um, Fort Scott National Historic Site in, in uh, Fort Scott, Kansas, in East Kansas. And so um, being there, you get the story of uh, the Mexican-American War. And so that is one of the most impactful wars that so many people have zero understanding of. And so it's like, it's that gray area, it's that middle ground, but it's a war that is so impactful to what gets you then to the Civil War, because many of the people who ended up fighting in the Civil War got their first forays in in battle in Mexico, right? And so, um, and same for, can be said for Spanish American going into World uh, War One um, uh, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And so, overall, I think that the what you talk about with the War of eighteen twelve that's so impactful as well, because especially when you can gain freedom for not only your personal self as a man, because you know this is a masculine story in that sense, but to to be able to gain freedom for your um for your family too, I thought was I was like, dude, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to think about it. And, and I'll mention one last time, having grown up in Baltimore for the last time, I'll mention it. But one thing, hey, it's a, it's a, we're all we're all coastal. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're biased. And and when I was in, I swear, fifth or at least sixth, seventh, and grade, three years in a row, I had the uh, displeasure of visiting Fort McHenry every year for our field trip. That was like the only option. And it's funny now. I, I took my kids there two years ago, and it's time of my life. But the, the the War of 1812, I was taught in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, is in no way, shape, or form the um, the War of 1812 that I teach students today and write about. You know, I mean, Alan Taylor, uh, Bolster has a great chapter in the War of 1812, uh, Gene Smith's Slaves Gamble. I mean, historians have totally changed our interpretation of the War of 1812. You know, I, I was sold a bill of goods so many years ago that it was just a war between Britain and the United States over sailors in New England being impressed. And certainly that has a lot to do with it. But if you are looking at it from the perspective of Spanish Floridians or settlers on the Georgia border or that fugitive slave in Alabama, that war means something totally different. And so oftentimes these these wars, which can, which always have potential for being transformative, it's really up to the historian to take a certain position to reveal it, you know. And and I always, as a youngster, I would just I was a Civil War guy. I liked the World Wars, you know, to study. And War of eighteen twelve never registered until as an as an undergrad, you know, as a history major, I started to discover some of this stuff. And I said, wow, if I ever become a professor, if I ever teach American history, goodness gracious, I'm going to teach a different kind of War of 1812 history. And, and to see so many other people teaching the same thing today, that's fulfilling, man, to know that I'm not alone and that these suspicions I've long had about the war, that it's not this staid conflict between, you know, um, white nations, 
that it's it's this as Taylor says this internal civil war um, between or involving Native Americans, you know, African Americans and European Americans, and you know you can privilege one group if you want. That's the historian's prerogative, um, but it really is it's it's a it's an incredible story of of like interracial conflict, interracial cooperation on occasion. And so it's just, it can be the most, for me, um, the most fascinating war of all the wars in American history. And that's certainly the way I teach an early Republic class, which I'm teaching now. And I can't get enough of the War of 1812 now. You know, many, many years ago, I didn't, I, I wanted nothing to do with the War of 1812. And so from uh, the Pensacola point of view, that War of 1812 is about as, as transformative as you get. Now, the Civil War is, is is just multiplied. Um, but the whole arrival of the British, the liberation of, of something like 130 slaves officially from Pensacola, which is like the majority of the slave population. And, and most of most, if not all these slaves, they end up at prospect bluff or what becomes known as Negro fort and Negro fort. You know, it's, it's eventually 1815, 1816. There's hundreds of runaway slaves there. They found an asylum and, you know, they've been armed, uh, by the British, fed and clothed. And, you know, one newspaper writer estimates there's as many as a thousand fugitive slaves there. But the leadership class, the the soldiers who, who drilled, you know, around the fort's um, walls, um, most of them were from Pensacola. And so, you know, the War of 1812 is not just American history. It's, it's Florida history. It's Spanish history. It's Atlantic history. And that's certainly another sort of um, – spin that I try to put on that war. When we look at, like you said, a resurgence, um, I don't even know if it would be a resurgence. It almost feels like a frontal fight because it's more like, yeah, because a resurgence means that that means it was, there was something to, 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 to generate from. Right. And so I definitely, this is like that first wave of uh war of 1812, even if it's just from the sense of um, using the War of 1812 to speak about, you know, the use of black sailors and the use of, um, you know, um, national government against, you know, uh, you know, the, the British government fighting against the Americans again. And so when I think about that, I also think about uh, like what Bolster had with the uh, letters of, uh, of uh, African-American sailors from 1799 to 1814, which is a transformative thing that I definitely have for all people that I know who do Atlantic uh, world studies, um, Atlantic world history. I think that's an important piece. But going a little further with uh, the War of 1812 part um, and reaching a little past it, you know, in the aftermath of that, because as you talked about with the the impressing of, uh, of American sailors, I think that as America is finally actually forming, and so I'm using the thought of like after the War of 1812 is really when America is really hitting its stride. Um, as a nation, um, that's also coinciding with Florida becoming an important strategic uh, location too, um, and, and so you know that brings Pensacola even more into an important space as slavery begins to hard harden other places, right after after the Louisiana Purchase and such, and you know, and that is. That is a, that leads to what I I believe to be the you know one of the important um, main central contributions of this book is is sort of my argument uh, discovery if you will that you know ultimately what made Pensacola this this beacon and I'll put it in quotation marks this beacon of freedom for runaway slaves because it was it was 
listen, it's in the deep South. There are slave owners, there's slave catchers. It's a miserable place for runaway slave, but relative to central Alabama, central Mississippi, Louisiana, that this is, this is a good alternative. Um, but ultimately what made Pensacola unique or exceptional regarding this issue of fugitive slaves was ultimately that Pensacola failed to reach expectations. You know, Pensacola was on the periphery of the the soon-to-be and eventually the antebellum South. The, the soil, and, and you're from the Gulf Coast. I mean, you you've seen the the soil in Tallahassee and Pensacola and points in between. It's it's sand. You can't grow a lot of crops there. Now you get further inland, you can, but not along the coast. And so, you know, Pensacola was relatively a deep water port, but compared to the Mississippi, um, Mobile, I mean, it's, it's a shallow water port. So you couldn't get these big ships in and out to, to, to help cotton, you know, be, be imported or sorry, be exported. And so with limited shipping possibilities, um, the agriculture is not conducive to cotton growing. Um, Pensacola stagnates, um, not to mention you have this sort of leftover, you know, multiracial, multi-ethnic, um, you know, Spanish, Catholic, French, free black population from the Spanish era. And ultimately, Pensacola never becomes what it was supposed to be. Sort of this this part of this, this, this burgeoning, uh, you know, Southern uh, economy, this Southern culture, it lacked it. And, 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 and the word that I long ago came up, it was just, it was a frontier. It was a, a Southern frontier port. And so it's got a maritime component to it. It has um, this, this this racial component to it. It has this significant Catholic population. It has a lot of desperados who are coming from the frontier and you know and staying here. And you, you have you know immigrants coming in. And so ultimately, you never get in Pensacola what you get in most of the South, places like Nashville, places like Atlanta, places like New Orleans, where you just have this strict racial bi- binary. You have large you know um, flourishing populations. Everybody knows their place. There's a specific social hierarchy. It's kind of free-flowing in Pensacola. You know, you don't have this elite upper class. You don't have cotton growers. You don't have plantations. You don't have plantation houses. You have slaves working for the government. They're being leased to the government to build forts. Um, you have them working at the, the Navy Yard, which is run by the federal government. The federal government's leasing slaves. You have the shipping industry. You have lumber. You know, some of these urban little industrial plants are built. And so the, even the, the large numbers of slaves that are there, they're not doing back-breaking, mindless plantation labor. They're artisans, typically, or they're watermen. And that changes who you are. That changes the way you view the world. It changes your personality. And so Pensacola, Pensacola's failure to achieve, you know, um, the economic supporters of the area, you know, that, that failure is going to benefit slaves. If Pensacola had ever reached its, its expectations economically and socially, that would have been very bad for enslaved people. But because Pensa struggle, Pensacola struggled so mightily to, to become a, a, a full-fledged member of the antebellum South, slaves were able to exploit that for many, many years. And that is definitely an important piece is that when we talk about the power of the enslaved, right? So I'm in my, I'm, I'm in my home uh, uh, I'm in my room, which also serves as my office, and I'm looking at my library, and I see uh, John Blassingame's slave testimony, and I think about the power of the voice of the enslaved, and we look at 
you know, the work of people like Dine and Raymond Berry just down the road at uh, UT Austin with the price for their pound of flesh and looking at the intellectual production of the enslaved, because, you know, to, to the work that you have, you, the, the enslaved are making decisions here, right? The British are coming to them and saying, right now to us, it may seem like a non, like, like a non-decision, like you're going to go take that freedom, but it's so many other things you have to think about, right? When you're trying to traverse leaving areas of Alabama you know, you have stories of people saying, even as far as South Carolina, people using Pensacola as that base of operation or or that beacon as we keep using. And it just shows you that the power of the intellectual production of the enslaved is something that's so important that even you go from the beginning of enslavement or using like the Dunmore's, uh, 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 Lord Dunmore's proclamation um, as well in the um, Revolutionary War in November of 1775. And so there's so many different um, areas just to show you, like you were saying before, showing the importance and the power of the mind of the enslaved that is, I think, especially with a lot of studies like your own and with these uh, the other studies I spoke about before, um, it goes to show that thankfully scholars are really taking um, that on as a task uh, that they are specifically and explicitly um, engaging in as someone who is at the point of um, uh, uh, the PhD student where I'm going to be at the university of Delaware in the fall. It's like, it's good to see that. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, so, so I'll be, you know, I'll be going to Baltimore, you know, that's so I'll be flying into probably BWI or uh, into Philadelphia. But, um, but yeah, it's so important to see that, you know, the scholars that I look up to, they're, they're taking that on as, and as someone who wants to continue that kind of work, it's really good to be able to talk to those folks like yourself who are engaging in this work and asking similar questions. Um, so, so it's definitely a, a blessing and an honor to engage in this conversation or those among other reasons. Yeah, you know, and, it, and it's just these, these slaves, they are making these last minute, in some cases, decisions. And, and again, one of the most, it just gets me so excited to, to discover and write about and now talk about is the story of the Underground Railroad is the story of, you know, for better or worse, the narrative that has been passed down to us is the story of middle-class white Northerners um, spending some time and energy to help slaves escape. And, and there's some truth to that. And what, 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 what blows my mind is when you see in Pensacola, um, Southern Alabama, Southern Mississippi, you see these white Southerners, you see free black Southerners, you see these Native Americans, some multiracial. And I would in no way, shape or form classify some of these people as abolitionists. Um, they don't belong to the abolition society. They probably speak poorly of the newspapers that may or may not be circulating. But how many times did I find where one of these people, um, particularly these poor white Southerners, they either look the other way or they, you know, sometimes they intervene. I love, man, if there's this one story, uh, a court case I came across where an enslaved man, I guess he was arrested for stealing a hog and somebody started beating him mercilessly in the streets of Pensacola. And this this white onlooker came in and I, they, they referred to him as a yeoman. He's just a normal guy. He's not some elite landowner or anything like that. He could be a soldier, sailor. I don't know. And um, he intervenes and, and, and a tussle ensues. Um, and, and he basically, you know, 
saves this black guy from being beaten perhaps to death. And I forget the quotation now, but he says, go, like, get the hell out of here. Go wherever you want. Go free. You're free now. And, you know, so this guy, we don't know his, actually, his name was Brightly. I think it was Charles Brightly. And it went to court and and, and the records don't show what happened to him, but he was accused, obviously, of, of breaking some laws. But this guy is lost to us generally. You know, he's not an abolitionist. He, he probably wasn't even anti-slavery. But his he saw a, a guy, another human being, being mistreated, and he intervened. You know, he, he's going to have to pay a penalty for that. But he just did what he thought was right. And so I think you know, there's enough of these instances that I came across over, you know, a hundred-year period to, again, really – throw some 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 complicated ideas on race in the south and so you can still have racial sentiments you can still promote inequality yet at the same time you may have the capability of being uh, an interracialist you know i think of frederick Douglass when he said you know his low point at one point on a rural maryland plantation was when he, he had sort of given up and he felt like the the animal that slaves owners had been trying to turn him into. And so this is Frederick Douglass. This is the guy who, you know, fights Covey to the death almost. This is the guy who escapes from slavery. I mean, there's no one more militant than Frederick Douglass. But at one point in life, he had given up. And, and it shows you that, you know, people are different every day. You can live your whole life stable and quiet and passive. And then one day you see something and you act. And so I think there's just this whole conversation of, you know, People look back in history. Was 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 she racist or not? Was he racist or not? Well, it's very possible people can be racist and not racist, depending on the day, depending on what they witness happening before them. And so I think Pensacola more than other places for sure. But you see these, these again, Native Americans, uh, poor white Southerners, and the free blacks, you would almost expect to see it. But you see that, you know, the Spanish descendant people, the Creoles, time and again, they put their own necks on the line. To, to help these slaves escape. And they only do it once sometimes, at least that's what the record shows, but they did it. And so, I, I again, I, I try to convey um, through, you know, a lot of the, the discussion in the book that, that you know, the Underground Railroad, this notion of, of people helping slaves, it's not just Bostonians. You know, it's not just people in Cincinnati, Ohio, or, you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You know, William uh, Sills comes to mind. Bottom line is, all over this country, you had people, at least occasionally, trying to help out their their brother, you know, and and, and it, oftentimes it crossed racial lines, and that's that's a, a pretty um, forgotten story in American history, I think. Right, that kind of motley crew of sorts is really yeah, largely, that's a great word. you know, yeah. uh, what uh, folks like um, uh, Marcus Rediger talk about, um, but or even you know the the the, the white yeoman and the white um, non-slavering white like Carrie Lee Merritt's work with masterless men uh, speaks about as well. So there, there's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an, and it's an important intervention that you just made when you talk about, you know, is someone racist or is somebody not in particular to the time frame that we're speaking of and not in the contemporary sense, because um, to use an example, like uh, when Wendell Phillips Right. Noted abolitionists, all that in a bag of chips. And he was someone that black people, he, he, he was not exactly someone who did not have his paternalist and, and uh, potentially low-key racist sentiments as well. Just as people like Frederick Douglass or William Cooper now. Right. Even though Wendell Phillips, his library was the one that um, that uh, William uh, Cooper Nell ended up writing 
his uh, Colored Patriots Revolution uh, of 1776 and uh, in, in War of 1812, whose library he actually used while he was writing uh, both books. But and, and that's the thing, people in many ways people have the capacity to do good and bad, but you know some, maybe to different degrees as we as we as we know. Um, and so, so yeah, that was definitely an important intervention. And um, if you don't mind, you know, one of my favorite characters, and he might just be yours too, to our listeners after they read this book, Aiming for Pensacola, Future Slaves on the Atlantic and Southern Frontiers, I think that they're going to engage and really enjoy the story of uh, uh, Jonathan um, uh, Walker as well. Um, so if you could, could, you know, not to give it all away, right, not to give all the trade secrets, but to kind of highlight his uh, contribution to this story, because he was definitely an important figure that I definitely had to go Google after this to, to see a little bit more on as well. Yeah, he's just, you know, I'm so I'm so happy to be able to tell his story. Um, you know, again, the, the what has been passed down to us is these, you know, Wendell Phillips, a great example, um, this Boston Brahmin who from the lectern, in Boston, Massachusetts, and other parts of the Northeast, you know, does his part to get rid of slavery and not to discount his commitment. It was a lifelong dedication to getting rid of slavery and all other sorts of social reforms. But to be completely honest, you know, who fascinates me the most is the, those, those small group of people who were in the South or they went to the South and they paid a price, man. You know, it's, it's, I, I always, I tell my kids, I tell my students, you know, you know, everyone sits back and you certainly see that this today with people not voting, for example, or people who complain about whatever legislation is, 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 is being talked about today and bantied about, um, you know, tweeting about it, emailing about it, talking about the dinner table, quite honestly, doesn't mean a whole lot until you get out there. And, and it's not just voting. It's until you get out there and you march and you spread the word and you galvanize people, um, nothing happens. Um, and so what, what, what I found just again, time and again, um, hundred years before the civil war is you have people like Jonathan Walker. Now, now his, his business life, he's a, a ship, small ship captain, and he can build and repair ships. But long story short, he, he's, he's, he's from New England, and he's basically raised as an abolitionist in New Bedford. So he's very sympathetic before he ever goes to the Deep South. And eventually he does. He lives uh, a couple times in Pensacola, also Mobile. And he doesn't do anything that he thinks is radical. He's a very religious, very devout Christian, and all he tries to do is live his life like he, his interpretation of the Bible tells him to live his life, which is a very different interpretation than his white neighbors in Pensacola. And according to him, according to his reading of the Bible, all men are, are created equal. You know, it's, it's we're all of one blood. And so he just simply gets to Pensacola and he treats black people like equals. And, and, and it's not just that he says this, um, although he does. And he writes this down, um, but he attends integrated religious services. He breaks bread with these people. Um, they're in his house. They work together. And he just doesn't see any distinction. And so, you know, I think a lot of people today are like that. It's very hard to find people in the Deep South in the 1840s thinking like Jonathan Walker. I mean, he's so so far ahead of his time. And again, unlike Wendell Phillips, this guy is here risking his neck um, to just treat people like equals. And on numerous occasions, 
It's on the down low, of course, but he helps slaves escape. And at one point, there's three or four slaves that he knows very well from work and church. They had worked on a, on a railroad together. Um, they were leased to the railroad, and he was a railroad um, supervisor, superintendent for a while in downtown Pensacola. But three or four slaves, you know, they ask him, can you take us to the north? And Walker says, well, I, I, I will, but let's let's go to the Bahamas first. It's closer. Um, there's freedom. So let's get there first. And once we're safe, then we can go further north. And on the day of the escape, three more slaves show up. So eventually there's seven uh, black slaves. They worked a combination of the railroad uh, yard. Some of them worked at the Pensacola Navy Yard. And they and Jonathan Walker get in this skiff and set sail for the Bahamas. And they made it to within about 50 miles. They had just rounded Key West. They end up getting spotted by some suspicious a uh, boat captain, the U.S. Navy uh, nearby is brought in. He's uh, He and the slaves are taken back to Pensacola. The slaves are beaten uh, within an inch of their lives. Uh, one of them actually in a couple of months is going to slit his own throat um, because he just refuses to go back to slavery. But Jonathan Walker, it's a very big deal in the abolitionist press, but he's in prison for about a year. His fines are so exorbitant, he will never get out of jail, or that's the expectation. And most famously, he's brought in front of the courthouse one day, and he is branded on his uh, the palm of his hand the letters SS for slave stealer. And ultimately, abolitionists in both the United States and, and overseas raised enough money to pay to get him out of jail, pay his fines. So he goes to the north, and at least for a couple of months, he's a real cause celeb. You know, he goes to these... He's not a great public speaker, so he'll go to a uh, an abolitionist rally, and Frederick Douglass will give a speech, Blunda Phillips, and then they'll call him to the stage. And people don't really want to hear Jonathan Walker talk; they want to see his hand. And so he will literally, almost like Jesus, he'll 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 be sent into the crowd, and he walks through the crowd, and everyone's you know holding his hand, they're looking at his hand, they want to touch the brand. So he really, literally his hand becomes an icon of, of, of abolitionism. And, you know, maybe some of the sacrifices that Northerners, some of the, you know, the greater sacrifices that Northerners may need to start, you know, uh, subjecting themselves to uh, in order to free the slaves. And, you know, and, and it's, and it's such a great story, but it's so, you know, it's kind of, it's just, it's distressing because, Abolitionists, you know, they hailed this man. Um, historians, you know, some local historians and others, they, they've hailed this man. There's a series of biographies on him. But the slaves who initiated the escape, the slaves who end up enslaved again, you know, until my book, their names were sort of lost to history. And so it's, you know, you, I, I don't want to privilege the slave or the abolitionist. I really try to put them in one group. These are These are people who are you know, just, just shattering racial boundaries. They're in this project together. And in this case, it fails, but it does sort of just illuminate that, that, that Pensacola is experiencing this all the time. And many slaves don't make it, you know, quite unfortunately, but a handful do, and there's evidence of that. So it's really just an incredible story of people um, resisting um, they're resisting slavery. They're resisting the white supremacy, and it's blacks and it's whites and it's Creoles and it's Indians. And so it's really, wow! It's sort of a, a story of people who lived colorblind lives in a time and place you might not have thought that that was even possible. Right. And so when I think about you know his particular story, and that you know he's someone who um, predated 
um, at least in prominence anyway, uh, someone like, or maybe he's more contemporary, but uh, someone like John Brown, who would come into more prominence in obviously the 1850s and going into the Civil War time and, um, you know, as a catalyst for it. Um, you know, he, he was someone who also, you know, is someone who went down into the South to try to, to cause something. But honestly, Walker was much more successful in his. And, and so you have different outcomes, but the, um, the premise of it is, uh, of it being the action, you know, what was the underlying reasoning and rationale for the action, you know, are very similar. And that's why I think that coming out of reading your book, uh, reading about him and then also, you know, seeing what goes on with the Civil War, too, with African-Americans fighting in Florida and in the coastal areas and being around um, the Pensacola area, too, I thought was very important. And also the role that the federal government plays, particularly in that region, too, is also an intriguing factor to take uh, into consideration um, as people read this book, too. Yeah, that's again, yet, yet again, just another for me, amazing discovery. And, you know, I, I had done, you know, prior to this, this book, I I'd just been fascinated with the efforts of the federal government to support and encourage westward expansion of slavery, to put down slave revolts, to capture runaway slaves in the 1850s. You know, I, I, I hate to read it. You know, you like to think you live in a country that had a government that fought against this stuff. And the evidence points to the complete opposite. You're going back to the constitutional convention. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you, as soon as if you spend time in Pensacola and you have anybody else, if you go to Pensacola, it's, it's a quasi-military base. I mean, that's the economic engine in Pensacola, and it's been like that since the 1820s. I mean, that's the job to have. That's, that's, that's everything there, um, culturally, economically, all sorts of things. And the more I got into the records, you know, the National Archives, some of them locally in Pensacola, these these government contractors, these ship captains, the Navy was integrated in the antebellum era. The Navy is employing runaway slaves. The Navy is employing free blacks. You know, slaves are working on all these forts. They're building U.S. vessels. As I mentioned earlier, they're building the forts. And, you know, that may not be that subversive, but what's subversive is these slaves, these laborers, these sailors, they don't live with um, the slaves I'm talking about. The slaves don't live with owners. They live in the barracks alongside white soldiers. And what do soldiers do in Pensacola in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s when the sun goes down? They raise hell. They get drunk. They storm the streets of Pensacola. They go to taverns. Um, they gamble. Sometimes they stab each other. There's fist fights. There's a couple shootings. And it's shocking how many of these mobs and gangs and groups are interracial. And, you know, you, you have just this liquor trade. You have, again, this, this underground violence. And it's just... It is incredible stuff to come across. And, 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 and time and again, you see the more people drink, the more people party, the, 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 those racial lines have a tendency to fade away. So at one point I say in the book, you know, I'm not encouraging people to go out and drink to get rid of racism. But, <laughs> but there are examples of how, you know, the military experience, the maritime experience, um, certain social scenes. Um, racial boundaries have a tendency to fade, at least momentarily. And so the military, ultimately in Pensacola, it supports, promotes, condones slavery. But at nighttime, it is subverting slavery. And, and really, yet another just 
mind-blowing thing I came across was the very famous case of a Lieutenant Ho, um, and he was a ship captain, a naval ship captain, and, and he grossly abused someone on one of his ships through corporal punishment. And in a federal court in Pensacola in the 1840s, I think it was, maybe the 1830s, but um, slave testimony is allowed against Lieutenant Ho, and he's found guilty. And slave owners across the South, they erupt. You know, what is going on with our federal government? How could this be? You know, in our southern courts, we don't allow slave testimony. What is the problem with the federal government? And it goes to the desk of, I think it was Van Buren was the president. And he defends the right of this federal court to exercise its federal, you know, supreme powers in this southern town. And so, you know, if the federal government wants to resist, you know, local laws, they're going to do that. And so as we saw with Jonathan Walker, you see in Key West, the U.S. Navy helping to capture fugitive slaves and return them to their owners. But there's just as many instances where the federal government is doing things that, that really could be deemed subversive of, of slave owners' ambitions. And, and that, Adam, is just something I don't know anybody else who has really discovered in, in early American history. So, you know, on the whole, Federal government. I'm sorry. The, the military is a part of the federal government. It, it's pro-slavery, quite frankly. But in Pensacola, there are some exceptions to that rule for sure. Right, and I definitely think that the how, how we talk about subverting slavery and how we engage in you know what what the role of the federal government has been in promoting and also uh, disabling slavery is definitely one of ebbs and flows and contradictions as a whole. But at least in the, in the, in a couple instances, you see the federal government at least having the capacity in very few instances uh, in the pre-Civil War age of saying, you know what, we're at least individually in this case, going to allow for a deviation. And that deviation uh, encapsulated the opportunity of getting the testimony of the, of the enslaved. And I think that's important too, because that's another area where you can hear and to engage with the voice of the enslaved, though through the interlocutor of the person who's taken the testimony um, and who's uh, and, and the court reporter of sorts. Um, and so, you know, Wow, man, time has been flying by. Uh, and so um, in the brief time that we have with you, um, with this book, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's a tremendous book that I think that our listeners are going to really have to digest a little longer because I'm sure that they probably engage with the thought of um, – you have the Southerners who are, you know, Southern enslaved who are going north to freedom and and such like that. But clearly, based upon this book, even going back to the to the colonial era, Pensacola was a place where it was a beacon uh, for the opportunity of gaining freedom, or at least engaging in a different kind of of uh, of, of unfreedom and slavery that you that you would probably not find in. In most other uh, southern, uh, deep southern uh, uh, towns and or cities. And so with that being said, um, you know, this book, tremendous book, but we also like to know, uh, we like to get a little greedy here at the New Books Network's African-American Studies channel of what are, what are our authors and historians engaging with next so that we can kind of kind of tra- show the trajectory of how we can bring uh, ourselves together again on the channel. 
Well, I hope I, I conveyed my enthusiasm over this book because you know every historian just you know it, history is a it's a it's 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 a passion and it really is and so this this whole project from day one is just it's just something I it, uh, again I was the vessel that that just you know put in written form what the sources were telling me but I can't get enough of it quite honestly and so what I'm actually uh, have written now or I'm, I'm wrapping up now is is an actual uh, uh, book length um, account narrative account of Negro Fort um, yet another thing connected to the War of 1812 not enough people know about and I was very happy to hear that you found Aiming for Pensacola a readable text and so every time I write a book you know the, the more I write um, I, I try to make it as accessible to as large an audience as possible. So I really want to, you know, author the first really readable, really accessible narrative of what what was the largest um, fugitive slave colony in the history of the present day United States. And there's some really good scholarship on it, but I just want to make sure that it's it's accessible to the undergraduate, to the, the social studies teacher, you know, the lawyer in the summer who wants a good book to read. And I think people uh, will come away shocked with, with some of the stories of you know, the interaction between these British officers, the Admiral Cochran, um, fugitive slaves. Let's not forget Andrew Jackson, um, the, the, the incredible number of Creek Indians, the Seminole Indians. And it all is, is centered on this, this fort that the British will leave to hundreds of runaway slaves um, in 1815. And for over a year, it survives independently. And ultimately, it's brought down by a hot shot, a red hot cannonball fired from a U.S. naval ship. And so it's ultimately in July 1816, uh, Jackson orders a combined Army-Navy assault on the fort. And so there's a great example of the federal military, the government being used to put down slave resistance and all that stuff. But it's a, it's again, it's a, it's a, another project that I can't wait to finish and and talk to people about because I think it it, it will find an audience. Well, hey, uh, one thing is for certain, uh, you have found a captive audience with the listeners with uh, New Books in African American Studies, and so um, definitely once again, thank you um, for your insight, thank you for your scholarship, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak with you on the channel because once again. Um, aiming for Pensacola, Fugitive Slaves on the Atlantic and Southern Frontiers uh, by uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Houston, uh, Matthew Clavin. And this book is published by Harvard University Press. And so um, once again, thank you so much. And um, I cannot wait to hear more uh, from you with this new project, um, a finishing project with the Negro Fort as well, because as you said, that's a that's an under- um, under known um, area of, uh, of fl- not only Florida and Southern history, but of national history as well. And even international, considering it's British too. And so there's so many different layers and those layers we will unfurl on the next episode of Matthew Clavin on the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. Thank you, Adam. Alrighty. Until next time, 